I want to turn back to the word and we're going to go ahead and dive in. Uh, one of the things that uh, we all love to hate or hate to love are TV cliffhangers. Very often at the end of a season, uh, our favorite TV show will give us an episode where right at the end, something very, very dramatic happens and we don't know the resolution. And back in the Stone Ages, before streaming services, when we were all chained and burdened by having to watch TV live as it happened, uh, seeing a cliffhanger meant sometime in May, seeing this episode of television and going, oh! and now I have to spend the entire summer wondering what's gonna happen. And so, for instance, Ross was supposed to be marrying uh, one girl, but instead he said, I take thee, Rachel. And, and we all had to wonder what's gonna happen. Is the wedding gonna go on? Uh, or, or somebody stabbed Dr. Carter in the ER. And, and we had to spend all summer long wondering, is he gonna survive? Or, or Jim and Pam finally kissed in the office. And, and we had to spend the entire summer wondering, you know, is she finally going to break up with Roy or not? And before all of that, we all needed to know who shot JR. <laughs> when we left last Sunday, we left on a cliffhanger. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were headed for the furnace because they had told Nebuchadnezzar that they would not bow down before his great monument. And, and you and I, we were left in the tension of knowing that God could deliver, could deliver them, but we didn't know if God would deliver them. And I don't know about you, but I hardly slept. It, it's, it's been a terrible week. And so we need to dive in and figure out what happened. Uh, and so we come to Daniel chapter 3, verse 19, and it says this. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. And then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and they threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants and their turbans and their robes and their other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. As best we can tell, furnaces in the ancient world were built on the ground and, and they had gaps in the sidewalls for inserting fuel or for pumping the bellows or, or for handling the metal and material that was being forged. But there was also a large vent hole in the top of an ancient furnace. And it seems that in this case, what happened is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tied together and they were led to the top of the furnace where they were to be dropped through the vent hole in the top. If you're looking for a picture here, you might imagine the toys in Toy Story 3 or Terminator 2, if that's more your speed. Thank you. As they approached it... <laughs> As they approached the vent in the top of the furnace with the fire raging below, a burst of flame shot up through the hole and it claimed the lives of their guards. 
just as three young, the three young men were thrown into the forge. It's a pretty violent death, wouldn't you say? But here's the thing that I think the author is trying to help us understand. It wasn't just a violent death. It was a reckless death. Let me remind you of this, going back to a little bit of the story that we read last week. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't here because they wanted to be. They weren't trying to pick this fight. They aren't the ones who made an issue out of their decision not to bow. As a matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have even known about it if somebody hadn't tattled on him. They weren't trying to make martyrs of themselves. They were merely living according to the standards of righteousness that God expected for them. I believe if they hadn't been pointed out, they probably would have lived the rest of their lives without a confrontation on this issue. You know, we we actually see that pattern repeat itself quite a few times in the book of Daniel. Righteous men choosing not to make an issue out of their own righteousness, choosing not to initiate a battle with the world around them, choosing rather to live lives of peace, lives that bear witness only to the righteousness of God, even if it's just in the privacy of their own homes. That's how Daniel, you'll remember, navigated the conflict around eating the king's food. That's how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decided to handle the issue of bowing down before the monument. And later on in several weeks, we'll be reading the story of how Daniel employs a similar strategy in a matter involving a den of lions. In each case, the men chose not to draw attention to themselves or to make a public spectacle of the subject at hand. They were not crusaders for righteousness. They were merely stewards of godliness. And it seems they would have been quite happy to live that way peaceably, just as long as the world was willing to let them. But the world wasn't willing. In this case, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are pointed out. And the result was a royal tantrum. That's really all you can call it. Think of all the things that the verses we just read tell us about how Nebuchadnezzar responded. It says he was furious. And then it says his face became distorted with rage. I, I'm not sure I know what that means. I try, would you guys distort your faces with rage for me for a second? I'd like to see what that, what that, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, thank you. That was, that was very helpful. I'm not, face became distorted. That's an interesting turn of the phrase to me. But check this out. It says that Nebuchadnezzar commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Can I point out that that's a functional impossibility? They, they lacked the technology to do that. It's not like if the furnace was a thousand degrees, they could make it 7,000 degrees. Nebuchadnezzar is just like screaming things here that that don't even make sense. And and I kind of picture the commander of the furnace, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's like, so is it it seven times hotter now, like I said? And and the commander's like, "Uh, yes, sir, whatever. You know, like, okay, it's seven times hotter, fine. Um, There's no trial. There's no preparation for for execution. In the ancient world, if you were going to be executed, typically you were stripped naked. 
And that's why the author makes a point of telling us these guys are still wearing their clothes. And they just like wrap it. No, 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 don't take the damage. Just throw them in the fire. That's kind of what's going on here. He's having a tantrum. He's reckless to the point of, of killing his own soldiers. Nebuchadnezzar isn't dispensing cold-hearted measured justice. This is a frenzy of unhinged wrath. And that's what happens when the ruinous ways of the world are disrupted with godly righteousness. The world may respond to righteousness with a tantrum. Could happen. We need to be aware. We need to be so warned. The world may respond to righteousness with a tantrum. Have you ever seen a toddler throw a tantrum? Parents in the room, amen, glory, hallelujah. On the floor, kicking, screaming. Please don't point out your kids right now. I mean, talk to them afterwards. Completely out of control. Have you ever seen an adult throw a tantrum? Please don't point out your spouse <laughs> or anybody else. Please don't point out your pastor. <laughs> a friend of mine used to tell this story of a time when he had day surgery and his wife was bringing him home from the day surgery and he was still very much under the influence of the anesthesia that he had been given. And as they were on the way home, she pulled up the car to a, stopped at an intersection at a red light, and there was a White Castle hamburger place on the corner. And he said, I'm hungry, I want White Castle. And she said, you're not, no, no one wants White Castle. You're, you're like, we're, we're not getting White Castle. And he said, I'm hungry, I want White Castle. And she said, you know, the doctor told you, you can't eat this afternoon. We're not getting White Castle. And he started to pound the dashboard and kick and agree, I want White Castle. And so she stopped and they got White Castle because it was just easier than dealing with the doctor's rules. That's a tantrum. Sometimes that's what it looks like when the kingdoms of this world are disrupted by an outbreak of the kingdom of God. The reaction can be sudden, frantic, and fierce. Can I remind you of an image I gave you a couple of weeks ago? We were talking about this disruption idea. This idea that righteousness serves as a disruption to the process of ruin. And I, I gave you this image of a, a tree planted near the river where I like to go fishing. A tree that's planted a few feet away from the edge of the river. But a few years ago, I told you the river had flooded in the heavy rains and the water had come up, not just to cover the base of the tree, but it had come up four or five feet on the trunk of this little tree. And I talked about how I had discovered days later that the tree had served as kind of a dam, not from its own narrow little trunk, but because it impeded the flow of branches and, and, and fallen tree limbs and bushes and clutter of all sorts as they were rushing down river, they got caught up. They got caught up on this little tree limb that merely stayed planted in its place. And what started as a minor little couple of inch impediment to the flow of the river over the course of hours and the flood hours became a giant dam 
that altered the course of the river itself. I told you that's what righteousness looks like. It merely stands its ground and in so doing becomes an impediment, becomes a disruption to the process of ruin. I want you to picture that tree once again as it endures the rushing waters of the flood. The tree hasn't done anything. The tree isn't on the offensive. The tree isn't trying to make a point. The tree is just standing firmly right where God has rightly planted it. And yet, despite that, the tree is buffeted again and again and again. Imagine the force of impact of each branch and each limb as it crashes into it with the fury of the waters. Imagine the fury of those floodwaters as they rise against the trunk. Imagine the sudden, the frantic, and the fierce concussions that befall our tree as it merely stands in its place. This is what nature's tantrum looks and feels like. And when we stand in righteousness, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood in righteousness, we are prone to likewise reap the tantrums of the world. They may be sudden, they may be frantic, they may be fierce. It might seem illogical or, or disproportionate. It may buffet us with the fury of floodwaters or the intensity of a furnace. And our task is to stay rooted as God has rightly planted us. And in the case of these three young men, that led them into a furnace and to certain death. But as Nebuchadnezzar peers into the vents on the side of the furnace, the story takes an unexpected turn. Let's pick it up in verse 24. Suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, uh, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out! Come here! So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, the officials, the governors, and the advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed. And their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. The text goes on to describe Nebuchadnezzar's amazement. Uh, we read through to the end of the chapter and you'll, you'll hear Nebuchadnezzar go, this is amazing. He gives another one of those declarations about how their God is the most powerful God. We've heard that before, haven't we? And, and you know what he does? He gives them another promotion. <laughs> We've heard that before, haven't we? This is Nebuchadnezzar going to Nebuchadnezzar, right? This is, this is what happens here. But I, I want to come back and just give you a point of explanation. There's this line in the middle of what I just read that, that piques our interest. Nebuchadnezzar sees a fourth figure in the furnace, 
and he exclaims, uh, this fourth man looks like a god. Now, depending on the English translation you're reading from, it might say, as, as the New Living Translation that I read from, he looks like a god. It might say, he looks like a son of a god, which is actually a literal translation of what's happening there. Um, and it might say he looks like, and this is probably most accurate to what we presume Nebuchadnezzar actually said, might say a son of the gods, plural. We read that through the lens of 21st century Christianity and we get all excited because son of God is, is how we refer to Jesus. And oh my goodness, Nebuchadnezzar saw Jesus. And I think we have to pump the brakes on that just a little bit in, in, in this sense. Nebuchadnezzar has no idea who Jesus is. He lived 600 years before Jesus. He's not making a theological statement, not one that you and I would understand anyhow. He obviously couldn't identify who this fourth figure is. What he's doing is using an expression, a phrase, a son of the gods that we know for a fact was a, a very, very common expression among the ancient pagans to describe the, the supernatural, the supernatural, we, he, whatever. He says what he says, and, and you and I are left to, to speculate about who precisely this fourth figure was. Who precisely did Nebuchadnezzar see in there? And what are the options? Was it an angel? It absolutely could have been an angel sent to guard and protect the three young men. Could it have been Jesus? Did he see Jesus? Absolutely. Uh, we know from scripture that though Jesus wouldn't be born in Bethlehem until about 600 years later, there are a handful of times throughout the Old Testament when Jesus makes cameo appearances ahead of schedule. And, and this very well could have been one of those instances. Uh, I'm going to set all of that speculation aside. It's not terribly important for our purposes today to come up with a, a determination on here's exactly who that fourth figure was. Let's not speculate. The text really doesn't tell us with any certainty. And so it seems that the Holy Spirit doesn't feel that it's, it's incredibly important for you and I to have a strong feeling about precisely who it was. Let's just agree that whoever the fourth man was, Angel, divine, Jesus himself, whoever, he represented the tangible presence of God. And so I'm just going to refer to the presence of God. That fourth figure represented the tangible and protective presence of God. And it shows us that our righteous God meets his people in the ruin. For six weeks, We've been highlighting the contrast between righteousness and ruin. But let's not make any mistakes here. It's not our righteousness that we're talking about. It's God's. The Bible is clear that our righteousness, your righteousness, my righteousness, everybody put all their righteousness together. We'll put it in one big pile. The Bible is pretty clear that that amounts to nothing. It's the righteousness of God that stands in contrast to the ruin of the world. The faithful people of God aren't righteous unto themselves. They merely bear witness to the righteousness of God. Uh, that's kind of a very convoluted way of saying this. If you want to know what righteousness looks like, look to God. Yes. If you want to know what righteousness looks like, look, look to God. 
And where was God in this story? Where do you find God in this story? He was in the fire. He was in the furnace. He was in the flames. And more amazing than that, he stayed there. And even more amazing than that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stayed there too. Did you catch that? Did you catch it? What were they doing? They, they were walking around. He looked in there. All right, behold, I see four men and they're banging on the window saying, Let, no, 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 no. That's not how the story went. He said, I, they're unbound and they're walking around. Just chilling like a villain in there. It's like, like they, they, they're just there. They just stayed there. Why? Because that's where the presence of God was. You might have expected that God was going to show up and, and destroy the furnace and bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out in some sort of icy, snowy chariot fit for Princess Elsa. I must have watched a lot of TV this week. <laughs> But that's not how the story goes. God isn't there to rescue them from the furnace. He's there to walk with them in the furnace. Uh oh, let me say that again. God isn't there to rescue them from the furnace. He's there to walk with them in the furnace. If you're not comfortable with that statement, that's okay. Please just give me about five minutes, okay? I'm going to say it one more time. God isn't there to rescue them from the furnace. He's there to walk with them in the furnace. This is what we sometimes refer to as incarnational theology. It's this idea that God's relationship with humankind is defined by his commitment to be with us. And that means that God's presence is with his people, not just in their moments of great victory, but especially in their seasons of greatest challenge. And that's why the psalmist writes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Answer it for me. Because you are with me. So God would stay with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just as long as he needed to. Just as long as they journeyed round and round in circles in that furnace of flames. Because it wasn't God's command that called them out of the fire. They found the exit at the call of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who told them to come out. But God's presence would stay with them so long as they were surrounded by the flames. Can you apply that to your life today? Men and women of God, God's presence will stay with you so long as you are surrounded by the flames. And maybe this is the most difficult part of the story. God was with these three young men and they made it out of the fire. Their story is a happy one. It's one that we can celebrate, but not every righteous person has a story that ends that way. The Bible is filled with stories of righteous men and women who found themselves in the ruins of this world and never escaped. One of those stories can be found in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. 
This particular story takes place about 600 years after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and actually just a handful of years after the story of Jesus. The story that I'm thinking about is a story about a man named Stephen. He was filled with the righteousness of God, but the powers of the world met him with a tantrum of anger, and he was summarily sentenced to die. And just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he was rushed to a violent execution that he didn't deserve. And I want to read to you just a couple of verses from his story in Acts chapter 7. Beginning in verse 5, the word tells us that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and stoned him. And Stephen died that day. As with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the presence of God was with Stephen in the moment of his greatest trial. But unlike the three boys whose stories we've been following, Stephen wouldn't survive his trial. But God was with him just the same. God was with him just the same. So we say our righteous God meets his people in the ruin, whether they escape it or not. Whether they escape it or not, God can be found in the furnace. Whether they escape it or not, God can be found in the trial. Whether they escape it or not, God can be found in the crisis. The face-off with Nebuchadnezzar in the front of the furnace ended in a celebration of victory. But as we said, there are plenty of stories right in the scripture, right in the very days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that didn't end that way. Just a few decades before these three young men were born, a king, a good king, a godly king by the name of Josiah brought revival to their homeland. But when an evil king brought his armies into Judah, Josiah was killed in battle. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the furnace, at the very moment they are in the furnace in Babylon, back at home in Jerusalem, most of their countrymen are still waiting and praying for deliverance from the armies of Babylon. But that deliverance would never come. Just a few months after the furnace, the armies of Babylon finally entered Jerusalem. They destroy God's temple. They kill thousands of people and take many, many hundreds more into captivity. As prisoners. Well, hey, we, we don't really have to look any further than Jesus himself to see this kind of example, right? In the garden on the night that he was betrayed, the Gospel of Matthew records that Jesus prayed, If it is possible, Father, may this cup be taking, taken from me. But it wasn't. Jesus didn't escape the trial that he was facing. And he went on to his crucifixion. And in each one of these situations and countless others that we could come up with, both from scripture and from our own understandings and stories, unlike what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the but even if scenario that we talked about a week ago played itself out. We will be faithful because God can save us, but even if. That's how things happen sometimes. 
our heritage of faith is filled with the stories of men and women who prayerfully looked for an escape from their trials. But even if that escape never came, they remained faithful. Now, I imagine that right about this point, you're probably thinking, Dan, this is the worst sermon you've ever preached. Because <laughs> you're trying to tell me that I'm supposed to remain faithfully rooted in righteousness. And, and as a reward for that, God may or may not get me out of my predicament. <laughs> How encouraging. Thank you very little. Or maybe you're thinking about how you're in the midst of a trial right now. Maybe it's getting a little bit toasty in your life. Maybe you are on the receiving end of a few of the tantrums that the kings of this world throw our way. Not because we went trying to pick a fight with anybody. But just because we were trying to live our lives rooted in righteousness. In a kingdom of ruin. Wasn't Shadrach's choice to be carted off to Babylon as a junior hire? It wasn't Meshach's choice to have his name changed so that it would give honor to some pagan god. It wasn't Abednego's choice to have to spend the entirety of his life serving the king who had destroyed his home. They didn't pick this fight. They're just trying to live the way God wanted them to live. And the fight came to them. If that's you today, I have a word for you. Worship team, would you come? Here's my word for you. Ruin may have come. Ruin may yet be on the way. But God has never abandoned you. God has never abandoned you. He walks with you in the flames. He stands over you as the world throws stones as he did with Stephen. He is over you. He is around you. By our our privileged understanding of the way God works, he is in you. The Holy Spirit has made you his dwelling place. And he doesn't run when it gets hot. You know, when the disaster comes, we talked about Convoy of Hope, right? American Red Cross, UNICEF, National Guard. All these these organizations get called up. and, And when we know it's coming, we don't know it's coming with earthquakes, but sometimes we know it's coming. When it's political strife, when it's, when it's a natural disaster like a hurricane, when it's something we can predict, when they go through, when it's forest fires out in the west, they go through the communities and they knock on the doors and they say, disaster's coming, you'd best get out of your house. You'd best get out of your house, right? I want you to hold that image in your mind because when the de- disaster's coming, and they knock on the, the door of the Holy Spirit's house and they say, you best get out of your house. He says, oh no, I don't go anywhere. I don't leave. I'm here when the flames come. 
I'm here when the storm comes. I'm here when the fire burns. I'm here when the boulders fall. I'm here when the wind blows and the floodwaters rise. I'm here when the world is on the offensive. I'm here when my people didn't pick the fight, but I planted them in a place where they're gonna know the, the effects and the tantrums and the rampage of ruin. He says, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. If it was me, you know, my, my, in my flesh, I, I want to be able to tell you, follow these three steps and everything will work out perfectly. But you're smarter than that, aren't you? <laughs> you're smarter than that. You know that furnaces burn. We don't need a God who's just gonna give us a formula to follow. We need a God who's gonna be with us no matter what comes. We need a God who said, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And look church, I, I, I pray, I pray that, that your life would be punctuated with, with the joys of miracles that we didn't foresee. I pray that, that your life would be marked by these powerful encounters with God where the supernatural happens. That is such a foundational aspect of what we believe. I don't want to throw the, the theological baby out with the theological bathwater here. Hear me well. I am not saying that, oh, well, we'll just kind of deal with it. <laughs> That's not the message here today. Our God is a powerful God. Yes. Nothing is too difficult for him. And so if you find yourself in the furnace today, I want you to do what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. I want you to dwell in the presence of God. But I don't think they were walking, you know, to get their steps in. <laughs> I mean, the text isn't clear, but I think they were praying. I think they were still praying for a miraculous release. I think they were praying in the presence of God. And I think we can do the same. God's presence. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. God's presence. Nothing else matters. I don't know if you've, you've heard some of these stories, but uh, in, in Ohio, there's a, there's a college, Asbury College, and a theological seminary. Have you seen the stories about Asbury this week? Yeah. Yes. Like a lot of Christian colleges, the students come together several times a week, first thing in the morning for a chapel service. Asbury's a wonderful, wonderful school. Wednesday morning, the students got together for their 10 a.m. chapel service. As of last night, that chapel service is still going on. Praise the Lord. It's still going on. 
Because at 10 a.m. they began to pray and the presence of God fell in in that chapel room. And nothing else matters. And so these students gathered at the altar and and the band just kept playing and, and they just kept praying. And they're still there. People keep coming. They're still there. Over time, people, you know, folks got to sleep, right? And they, they, they'd go out and go home, but other people would come in. And now, already, just a few days later, people are starting to come in from other schools, from other churches, from other places, from other states. And the chapel service hasn't ended. The administration has said, there's, there's no classes. There's no classes. You know why? Because nothing else matters. You know what matters a little? Pizza. They had to bring in food and, and water bottles and make sure there's, there's bathrooms available because people are flocking into the presence of God because nothing else matters. And here we are, I don't, I don't have an up-to-the-minute report, but as of four days later, Wednesday morning's chapel service was still going on because just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were walking and, and saying, I don't care about the, f- I don't even want to leave anymore because this is where God's presence is. Oh, that would be our story. Oh, that would be our testimony. I don't even want to leave anymore. There's a song that comes to mind. And it's why I asked the band to come up. You know me, I'm going old school on you. But we used to sing that the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory. Isn't that what happens when God's presence surrounds us? You're like, how could they stay in the furnace? How could they still be there? How could could Stephen be standing and going, I see the Lord! As as the stones are coming his way. Like, he, he should have dodged them or something. But it didn't matter anymore. And as much as I pray that you would never face a trial like that, I'm convicted today that a far more godly prayer for you, my brothers and my sisters, would be that when you face those trials, the presence of God would so surround and envelop you that the things of the world grow so strangely dim that it just doesn't even matter anymore. Is that what you want today? Yes, yes. If that's your heart, would you just stand and we'll, we'll sing this chorus a couple of times together. And I want us to receive what God has today. Thank you, Lord. Turn your eyes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. And the themes of earth.
of the kings of this earth. You surround your people going before and following behind. You reign over us. Lord, the prophet had a vision of, of, of you dancing over your people with joy and with gladness. And we, we believe that today. We believe that your presence has preceded us and surrounds us here in this place. And so, Lord, as we stand in your presence and we continually call out to you, Lord, for deliverance, as we call out to you for miracles, as we call out to you, God, for release and for miracle. Lord, it's with hearts that recognize, hey, we just want to be where you are. We just want to be where you are. And God, if we can find you in the flame, then we will go to the flames. If we can find you, if we can find you in the trial, then we will stand in righteousness in the midst of the trial. If we can find you, we will go. Lord, how we love your presence. How we love your presence. How we love your presence. Thank you. Church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a soft dismissal here. I'm going to give you the invitation to dismiss yourself quietly and go visit in the hallways or in the foyers. Go pick up your children if that's what you need to do. But I'm going to ask the band to stay and, and play that tune another time or two. And I want to give you the opportunity to, to stay in worship, even if only for a moment. But just to say there's another moment that I need with God today. I'm not ready to leave his presence. I'm not ready to leave his presence. Just not quite yet. We're not going to try and formulate or recreate anything like what I told you about it as That's not why we're doing this today. That's just one more story of something else that happened. God has a particular plan for us here today. God has a particular reason why he called you into his house today. And if he's accomplished that, that's fine. But if you need just another moment or two to talk to him about that, this is a place where you can do that. If there's nothing in particular that you even necessarily feel like you and the Lord have to say to each other, maybe you just want to spend another moment or two in his presence. And if that's you today, I invite you even to come forward, even to come forward up to the stairs here into the area in the front so that we're not disturbed by what happens behind us, but just that we spend our last few moments together very distinctly aware of the presence of God today. When I say amen, that'll be the dismissal. Father, we thank you for your presence here today. We thank you, Jesus, that you go with us. 
We thank you that you surround us, that you love us, that you hover over us, that you protect us. We thank you, Lord, that as we turn our eyes and focus more and more on the security of the knowledge of your presence, that the things of this world, the trials, the idols that we've erected, the concerns that we have, all of the worldly things, they begin to fade away. There's coming a day when they will all fade away. There's coming a day when the kingdom of heaven will be established throughout the known universe. And all that endures will be the things of God. Everything else will have totally faded away. But God, we have the privilege of stepping into that reality ahead of time right now. We have the privilege of being enveloped in your presence and concerning ourselves only with that which will endure. So Lord, as we continue to pray, as we continue to cry out to you, we leave the trials and the furnaces of this world at your feet. We cast our cares and our burdens upon you. We just want to be where you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look for His wonderful face.